Welcome back to Pancreas Pals, a podcast by diabetics for diabetics. I'm Emily, a writer and editor. And I'm Miriam, a licensed mental health counselor. We're just two women trying to live our best diabetic lives. While it might not always be easy due to the literal highs and lows, it always helps to have a Pancreas Pal to turn to. Hello and welcome to Pancreas Pals. I'm Emily. In this season, we will be having a rotating roster of co-hosts. No matter who's sitting beside me in the hosting chair, we're still just two people trying to live our best diabetic lives. Every week, we'll tackle a new topic from the diabetic perspective. Although we may offer tips and tricks, we are not medical professionals. However, we offer anecdotes and general thoughts on how to embrace a type 1 lifestyle on your own terms. It's not easy to do with all of the literal highs and lows, but it does help to have a pancreas pal to turn to. Hey guys, welcome to Pancreas Pals. Emily here, and this week's special co-host is the always special Miriam Brand. Hey, Miriam. Hi, guys. Glad to be back. Always glad to have you. And um, this week's special guest is Alex Donnelly. He is a marathoner amongst many other things, but we thought it would be dope to give him that title. Wow, I'm way too transparent. Um, And (laughs) this is your sixth marathon, Alex, that you're running? It is. Hi, Emily. Hi, Miriam. And oh, sorry. Hello, uh, Pancreas Pals uh, podcast listeners. Glad to be here. I've been trying uh, to get... It is. Yeah. It's my sixth, my sixth marathon. Um, I've done... This will be my fourth time doing New York City. And I did London last year and Berlin this year. I'm on a quest to do the six, and then it'll probably increase by the time I finish it, but the six world marathon majors. So after this, I'll still have Chicago... Boston and Tokyo to go. And then after that, I figure why not just try and run one on every continent. So we'll see what happens. That sounds um, like a feat. Uh, I can't wait to cheer you on, but let's, uh, let's start with, first I'm going to start with how we all know each other, which is obviously JDRF YLC, um, as is, I feel Uh like how I know everyone who comes on the podcast, um, but I've been trying to get Alex to come on forever and he's every time he's like, hell yeah, let's do this. And then I keep not planning it. So I'm glad that we're, I've learned how to follow through in life and I'm making progress and that Alex is finally here, but Alex has been involved with the YLC for three years. Yeah, I would say as long as you've been doing the podcast, which makes you my friend who's been running a podcast consistently the longest. <laughs> I mean, it is That's such a, a good title. I, yeah, I would love to keep that title. Um, tell all your other friends to quit. But I uh, really, that's a testament. Wow, I'm just shook that, that like we've been doing Pancreas Pals for like two or three years now. Um but now back to you, Alex. Can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis story just to kick things off? Sure. So I'm in my mid-20s now. Uh, a woman never reveals her age. Uh, <laughs> and I was diagnosed about four or five years ago. I was still in college at the time, and I was sort of rounding out my uh, senior spring. So wasn't really doing much. Uh, but I was trying to woo a girl who was very into running and, of course, picked up running in the process. So there I was running my my dutiful three miles a day trying to, uh, you know, uh, emotionally, uh, metaphorically, symbolically catch this girl. Uh, and in doing so, um, I started losing a lot of weight. 
and was losing a lot of weight for a few months. And I almost thought that maybe it was that I was running a lot or I went through a lot of different scenarios. I had lost and I'm, I'm on a, you know, I, I have a marathoner body <laughs> if you want to visualize it. Um, oh God, and I lost, about, I lost about 30 pounds on that frame to the point where I actually started to think that I might have an eating disorder. And I went to the like vitamin shop nearby my campus and said, I need some sort of like mass builder. And they're like, protein powder? Like you want to put on muscle? And I was like, I don't care what it is. I just need more weight. Yeah, I just need more weight on my like skeleton of a frame right now. Oh my god! Um, and, and I really did. I was like measuring out my calories. I was eating five thousand calories a day by the oh end god. of it, and still couldn't keep the weight on. So eventually, I was at the movies with this girl that I was chasing, and so it seemed to work. Gotten, <laughs> yeah, so it worked out. Yeah. I was gonna say this was working. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, and I. We went to the movies together, and I was drinking a water bottle. We both had water bottles. I finished mine before we even got to the movie. I asked if I could have some of hers, and she said, Alex, if you're this thirsty, there is something wrong with you, and, like, you need to go to the hospital. And I was so, like, smug about it. I was like, oh, yeah, watch me. (laughs) Um, The next day, of course, I Google, you know, massive weight loss, uh, thirsty all the time, you know. Um, and for some people, losing a lot of weight and being thirsty all the time just sounds like their freshman year of college. <laughs> but <laughs> Web, WebMD was like, you have diabetes, for oh, sure. How old were you? Uh, and I, I was 22 at the time. I was finishing up my senior year of college. Gotcha. And I walked into our medical clinic on campus. They said, what's wrong? I said, I have diabetes. They said, what do you want to do about that? And I said, I think I need a prescription for insulin or something. And uh, that's how I figured Are out. Are you serious? You uh, diagnosed like, yourself? Yeah, yeah self, totally. self-diagnosed, walked in. When they checked my blood sugar, my blood sugar was 712. Oh, my God. And, I like, feel, uh, like, nauseous thinking about that number. Yeah. And the funny thing is, and this is sort of how the marathoning all ties into this, when they were they were surprised that I was able to walk myself into the doctor at mm-hmm. 712, and they're like, talk to us about like your diet and your exercise levels. And I was telling them I was running for about like an hour a day, and they're like, wow, that's a lot of running. And this, mm-hmm. keep in mind, is that like my local health clinic on campus. This is not like a diabetes care facility. This is not an endocrinologist. Um, and this first doctor said like, wow, well that's really risky when you have diabetes, you're probably going to need to like cut down on your physical activity, you know, and probably stop running as much. Um, and I think it came from a good place of kind of knowing, well, blood sugar can drop. And if you're running, your blood sugar might mm-hmm. drop and then you'll, you know, pass out. But I kind of took that as like, well, you know, screw you. I'm not going to let this be the reason that I stop running. And I kind of then, you know, while still in the, the doctor's office said like, all right, you know what? I'm going to run a marathon one day. That's it. And since then, uh, four years ago, going on five years, I've run a marathon every year. Damn. You showed him who's boss, but yeah. Um, so uh, inspiring. It's like stick it to the man truly. And no. then prick yourself. But wondering, <laughs> um, when you got to see an endocrinologist, like, did they tell you to go to a hospital? Like, where did you go to school? I have so many questions. 
Right. Well, eventually I, I called my dad and I said, everything's fine. Don't tell mom, but I have diabetes. Don't and, tell mom. You know, he, he asked me, you know, how did you find out? And I told him the story and he was like, okay, I'm not going to tell your mom, but I think you should go to the hospital and get a second opinion because this is like, he had a close friend who had diabetes and he kind of knew that something just seemed amiss about this diagnosis. Yeah, it was, like, um, too casual. It was way too casual. I mean, literally, I was written a prescription for insulin and told, like, just go to the drugstore. Are you kidding and, me? And, like, I didn't, I didn't have any information around, like, well, how much insulin do you give yourself? Yeah. And, I didn't, and it's probably because, like, it, it, you walked in so confident, like, I have diabetes, I didn't give you a prescription, and they're like, uh, okay. Yeah. At any rate, we went to the hospital, like, across the street, and, you know, they, of course, then they put me, um, they put me in for four days, mm-hmm. you know, they got my levels back to normal, and then, like, you know, set me up with an endocrinologist who walked me through, okay, we're going to, here's your carb ratio, here's how to think about counting carbs, this is what long-acting insulin versus short-acting, and they really, like, walked me through the whole process. Mm-hmm. I um, imagine about- eventually your mom found out. Yes, she did eventually find out. Um, she was the one who then called me and told me to go to the hospital. <laughs> mm. I was like, imagine if still five years later, you still haven't told mom. Yeah, she's, she's like, still don't tell mom about Alex's diabetes. <laughs> don't listen to the podcast, Mrs. Donnelly. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't know about you guys, but that diagnosis, like the diagnosis it's, itself for me was a bit emotional. I remember calling my girlfriend like wanting to talk to her and be like, I have this thing. And like, I didn't really know what, I just felt confused, didn't really know what to make of it. Wait, I love that she was officially girlfriend. Like it really did work. Truly my mom to this day, the relationship did not work out, but my mom to this day speaks about her. Like she says the angel sent by God because she was, she was like in the healthcare field. Her family were both doctors. They really pushed me into this. I'm like, made it very normal for me right away when I was feeling really self-conscious about like injecting myself and like, you know, they were the ones who were sort of pushing me to find like a JDRF community when I was so hell bent on like, Mm -hmm. I don't need a support group or, you know, whatever I was saying at the time. Amazing. Yeah. That's, Um, I can, I cannot believe that you were written a prescription (laughs) and not shown how to give yourself an injection or proper dosage or carb ca- like I don't where did you go to school <laughs> this was at Columbia I mean this was not like oh my you know, god like I went to school in like the Caribbean or something I was like you would think they kind of had this down a little bit better um, it goes like- to show like primary care doctors or just really anyone who doesn't seem even endocrinologists who don't specialize in type one it's like there's really such a I don't want to say ignorance. There's just some misunderstanding of the complexity of type one. And I think they're like, Oh, diabetes. Okay. Like insulin, metformin, you know, low carb. I I think there is like such a, like a low threshold for, I don't know what what to do with us. Honestly, in my opinion, I was just having a conversation with one of my coworkers about this today because I was on the phone with my insurance company for like an, an exorbitant amount of time because the caseworker assigned or the insurance company, I'm like having a fight about my medical supply company because they're like a village of idiots and I'm trying to switch medical suppliers so I can get my Dexcom. And the caseworker that was assigned to me 
has no idea what diabetes is type like like specifically type one uh-huh. and she was confusing my insulin pump with my glu- my continuous glucose monitor which is something that can anyone like I don't blame anyone who doesn't have diabetes for not knowing this stuff like it's yeah. completely niche it is what it is but this woman is assigned to me and had she's as kind as could be had everything wrong uh-huh. And I'm like, that does not make me feel great. So that's like after having diabetes for four years and, you know, like I know I have a chart in my insurance company, like an account that says I'm type 1 diabetic. Like it shouldn't be. a giant big red post-it like this girl's expensive to us. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) probably. But just to think that like I'm – you know, we still deal with this level of, it's not ignorance in a negative way, but it's ignorance in terms of like people aren't given the proper tools to do, to have the most like positive effect at their jobs. And so you're, when you were diagnosed at Columbia, which is ironic because I go to the Naomi Berry Diabetes Center at Columbia, um, for my care, it, you know, you were at a student health clinic, right? So I can't tell you the number of times I was at BU, like I went to Boston University, and I would go into the clinic with like some kind of issue. And BU is one of the leading uh, research universities in the field of type 1 diabetes, like Dr. Damiano is there. No one knew a single thing about type 1. And I'm like, it just astounds me that these are two of the best hospitals in the U.S. And... It's we're still having to educate people, but you were kind of like, watch me run all these marathons and you did it. And I'm wondering if these people, I'm, I'm hoping that the health clinic at Columbia, let's send them this episode and be like, lol, you're running. I don't know about the health clinic specifically, but (laughs) I'll tell you, like, it's, it's funny. Like I remember having a fight with like, I think I had, I must've fired four different diabetes educators before finding one that like kind mm-hmm. of got how endurance athletes work with type one diabetes. Like even within the community, it's difficult mm-hmm. because, you know, forget there's all of the, the continuous glucose monitors and the pumps, but there's the, well, why didn't you give yourself overnight insulin? Oh, well, cause I'm running 20 miles tomorrow and I don't want to pass out. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, uh, is there another thing you can do? Well, not really. And I'll admit to, you know, myself perhaps not being the most, you know, I can be stubborn about my own care. Um, and it's, it's a delicate balance. I think for me, the biggest takeaway with that was that like a endocrinologist and an educator and whatever other care team you have, like they're a team and, you know, not all players play well on every team. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're a bad player and that doesn't mean they're a bad teammate, but just might not be the right teammate for you. Right. And if, if you're in, encountering sort of headwinds or obstacles in your own care, then it might be time to shop around, you know, ask friends or if you don't have other friends with type one, maybe find a, you know, a type one diabetes group or community who might be able to kind of give you resources around this because it's, it can be so tough on your own if you are the only person you know who has this and you just think it's like well this is the doctor that was assigned to me and that's it yeah that's very and that's i think what's what's so amazing about this like social media in general it's so much easier to access like the same type of diabetic as you are the same someone who's trying to do the same things as you are whereas even like five years ago ten years ago definitely not 
it was so much harder to find these people. And I think, you know, what you said is interesting, like the variety of educators you went through, I think also speaks to the, like how schools of thought have changed over the years of how best to manage this disease. You know, I've had it longer than you guys. I've had it, I guess, 23 years now. (laughs) And when I was first diagnosed, it was not to be like, well, back in my day, but really like back in the other old days, it was managed so differently. And we didn't have continuous glucose monitors. We didn't have any of this technology. So you were like, you gave your insulin at certain times. You had to eat exactly at certain times, certain meals. You didn't bolus. That wasn't a thing. You just like gave all these mix of insulins. And so I wonder if, you know, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of professionals in the field who are still kind of stuck in the old school. So when they see diabetics trying to do all these new funky things, it's like, well, that can't work because they haven't really caught up, if that makes sense. I think that's you know, that, that reminds me of when I was with some of my older uh, diabetes educators. They would look at my continuous glucose charts and they would give comments like, okay, well, like, you know, you're not, you actually manage yourself quite well at dinner time, but not well at breakfast. So like, what are you eating at breakfast? And I'm like, it's mm-hmm. funny you say that because I don't have dinner or breakfast ever. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I have two different jobs and oftentimes I'm getting home at midnight. So I have like a midnight snack or dinner. And therefore what you're seeing as my breakfast is probably my air quote middle of the night. And mm-hmm. like, that's what's going on. And they were saying like, look, could you eat dinner earlier? And for me, it's like, no, no, no like I can't yeah. for my, my schedule life. that doesn't yeah. work out. Exactly. And I think that's part of like, a maybe the doctors and medical professionals we work with just by nature of the schooling they need tend to be mm-hmm. half a generation to a generation removed. And I think that will yeah. continue to get better. But mm-hmm. originally it just felt like I was running my, you know, up against the wall every time when someone was like, well, the way to fix this is to eat dinner at 6 PM every day. And I was mm-hmm. telling them like, you know, I work in banking and I run a theater company. I am never free at 6 PM to do this. So yeah. And I think you're that? a good example of like, you refuse to let diabetes change your lifestyle instead you just had diabetes just had to adapt to you and versus you adapting to it and I think that's a a testament to your strength that you're like stubborn enough to say no like I'm not changing this is what I need to do and diabetes will have to catch up with me somehow yeah the other thing I'll just add to that is it was finally I, I met my match as with an endocrinologist who I think I sort of built that what exactly what you're saying, Miriam, that mm-hmm. attitude in my head. And when my A1Cs were still not where they needed to be, it took like finally a fairly strong endocrinologist who I went in there and mm-hmm. even said to this guy's face, like, listen, I, I, I'm pretty confident I'm going to like lose a toe at some point and I'm okay with that. And he said, you're going to lose an eye before you lose a toe. And that was sort of like... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah like make yes. Listen, make diabetes adapt to me, but recognize mm-hmm. that I have to. You have I have to take care of myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't just say that I'm invincible and you know eat with no regard or you know not, not care for myself. Insulin. You know, I mean, you can. There are tools that are used, but they're they're tools. They're not cures. Right. Actually, mm-hmm. I really want to jump in. Um, and talk a little bit about how you actually manage running with type one. Like what are your techniques and carb? Like, I know we've talked about this because every time I see you, I'm like, tell me more, teach me. But I truly am so intrigued with how you're able to maintain 
slash not crash your shugs when you're running for like hours on end? Like what's your go-to? I know you have these like gel blocks or whatever, but how many carbs are you consuming to maintain blood sugars while you run? So I'm fairly insulin sensitive, I guess. So for anyone keeping score at home, my current carb ratio, although obviously these things change, is one unit of insulin per 15 grams of carbs. And further, I have a sensitivity, I guess I think I think that's what it's called, of 50 to 1. So that if I'm just at 150 and I want to be at 100, if I give myself an extra unit, that will over you know two hours take me down. Damn. So with that in mind, if I'm running a 5K, which is three miles, I usually start at 250. And then I don't, I'll run with my pump set to auto mode. So that's giving me the sort of basal, but it's not giving me any bolus. Mm-hmm. And that will naturally between the running and the insulin will take me down from 250 to post race, like 130. And then as the adrenaline wears off, that'll take me down to, you know, 110 and 90. And that's usually where I'll sort of end up. So knowing that is like a backbone, I usually try to start most races in the 250 to 300 range. Uh, and then I'm consuming 10 grams of carbs per mile of a run. And I'll tell you that my first marathon, that was the biggest challenge, was figuring out what that ratio was. I was continuously going low, so like low that I would have need to stop running. And this would be in the middle of a half marathon. I could not keep my sugar levels high enough. And it's tough when you need to eat something while doing physical activity. Like I would start to feel nauseous. I would want to vomit. So that was sort of retraining my stomach to get used to eating on long runs. Because over the course of like, you know, for most people on a marathon, you might burn 3000 calories and maybe you'll consume 180. You know, I burned 3000 and I'm consuming 1500 to 2000. Mm-hmm. So what is it that you're you're using like what are your go-tos to consume that? I have uh, I believe it's Cliff Bars makes something called Shot Blocks. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Yeah, that's B L O K S. That's like a, a almost um like a gummy. It's a, a harder chew. Um, I usually have those for the first 10 miles. Those are about 8 grams of carbs each. It's fast acting. It's uh, has it's mixed with salt, so your legs don't cramp up. Um, but those eventually, I get tired of them very quickly and like want to puke. <laughs> so after the first ten miles, then I'll switch to Gatorade or Powerade. Make something called Gu Gels or Goos, and that's those little like packs packets that you see runners often holding and squeezing into their mouths. Maybe we can get that's- them to sponsor you. <laughs> I listen when and if I run the the seven continents, I'm going to need someone to pay money to, for me to do Antarctica. So sounds good to me. <laughs> well, amazing. Um, those are 20 to 30 grams of carbs. They also sometimes have caffeine in them, depending on your flavor. And so I can have one of those every three miles. And that usually will keep me where I need to be. And then when even those get too sickening for me, I will eat anything that's on the course. I will have a banana that somebody gives me. If someone throws me Skittles, I'll have those. I'll drink Gatorade. Um, It really takes a village in that way. Um, Actually, when I was first diagnosed, I used to just run laps of Central Park because I lived 
uh, two blocks away, and I figured if anything goes wrong, I could at least get myself home. And I would squirrel away along the route, like water bottles and glucose tabs and gels. Like, uh, and my endocrinologist made fun of me for being a little squirrel. <laughs> like, I would run, I would run three miles and be like, I think it's under this tree, and I would like look for it. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious! So, like, when you're training for these, let's talk a little bit about, um, like, you're having. What's your training schedule like leading up to a marathon? So my long runs are usually on the weekends, and that'll, let's say, Sunday. I try to keep it for Sundays. You you do them incrementally in such a way that the first week of training, which is about 16 weeks before a marathon, your long run will be six miles, and then it will be seven and a half, and then it will be nine, and then it will drop down to six. So it goes like three weeks up, one week back down to the beginning. And then after that, it repeats itself. So then you'll start at 11, you'll go 12 and a half, 13 and a half, drop back down to 11. Uh, and you keep doing this until you reach a high of 20 miles, and then you taper for two or three weeks, and then you have the marathon. When you're not on Sundays, what I like to do is Monday is just like a, a strength day in the gym. So that'll be maybe sometimes a, a light treadmill workout, but mainly sit-ups, crunches, uh, leg exercises. I really make sure to keep my IT bands and my hip flexors loose. And so that'll be the hip, those hip abductor and adductor machines that you never understand why anyone uses. <laughs> uh, because the thing for when you're running so much, you're only using your muscles in one direction, just backwards and forwards. Mm. It's very easy for different parts of your body to become very tight. And when like your hip flexors become very tight, they pull on everything in such a way that they move your kneecaps out of position. Yeah. So you really got to make sure to keep those loose. So on Mondays, I try to do those sort of restorative gym workouts. Mm-hmm. Tuesdays is a speed workout day. Uh, I like an exercise called the Yasso 800, which is where you'll run half a mile for pace. And that just seems like a, a speed pace that you're looking for. You'll take two minutes of rest. You'll run it again. You'll run two, two minutes of rest. And you keep doing that. And it trains your legs to get used to running at a quick speed without necessarily the hours it'll take you to recognize that pace for a long period of time. It's basically putting your body under stress. Um, Wednesdays, I like to do is like a soul cycle or biking day. I love that we're getting the day by day. You literally have something. It's a soul cycle day. Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, Thursdays is a strength day, which will be like running up hills, skipping up hills. uh, I love skipping. (laughs) Yep. Well, because you know what? You need the ankle strength more than you think. Um, And New York City is a hilly marathon course, so it comes in handy. Friday I'll do as a complete day off because I'm, you know, exhausted, young and I like to go out and I don't need to run every day. Oh my God. I'm literally Uh, thinking Fridays. Saturday I'll try to stay in the pool, which is again, another restorative day before the big run. That's insane. So like how many months out, how many months out do you start? Like I know people need to like, there are all these things you have to do to qualify for a marathon. So it's something that you would have to be doing, um, regardless like working your way up but where does like how many months out would you say you start doing your 11 mile runs your 20 you know those type of things yeah so anything that's long like six miles for me is like a standard weekend run that pretty much any time of the year I would be I would go out and do so when I'm finally going above six miles that's probably three months before a marathon Okay. Um, this year we started in late 
I had another race that I was training for, but New York City specifically, I probably started training for in late July. So then you have all of August, all of September, all of October, and then it's the first weekend of November is the race. That's amazing. You're such a yeah. inspiration. So dedicated, and it feels like you're doing marathons so often. Do you ever have like a season off? Um, depending on when the races are like London is in the spring. So when I did that race, I was training in the winter and then ran in the spring and then took a month off and then ran in the summer to to Mm -hmm. train for the fall marathon in New York city. Um, this next year, I'm giving myself nearly a full year off. My race after New York will be Chicago in October of next year. Okay. And And then then if I can get into, yeah, if I can get into Boston or Tokyo, those are both springtime marathons. So that would be a quick turnaround for Mm -hmm. the following year. So I went to Boston University for those listeners that don't know, and we have a holiday called Patriots Day, and it's where we literally had off to watch the Boston Marathon because the marathon went directly through the middle of our campus. So I would go and cheer on everyone while very much not running. (laughs) <laughs> and it was very fun That's and great. I saw all these literally the picture of fit humans like it is shocking to me I had a lot of friends in college who ran the Boston Marathon and it's one of the hardest marathons in the world to qualify for according to them I don't know if that's biased but whatevs yep. And that's true it's yeah. it's the camaraderie there like I cannot wait for you to run it it is one of the coolest things ever um so I'll definitely be on the lookout for that but we wish you... you know, the camaraderie that you talk about is actually one of the reasons I keep running New York, because even though I don't need it for any of my personal goals anymore, it's one of the races that has the biggest diabetes presence. JDRF this year has over 100 participants. We've already raised half a million dollars for That's type 1 insane. diabetes research. And we all, they give us all the same shirts. So while you're running, even if you're not having a good race or you're having the best race of your life, mm-hmm. you see all of these other people with JDRS shirts and you're feeling inspired by them. Mm-hmm. You're, you know that you're inspiring them uh, and vice versa. You know, the people that you see cheering for them. I can't tell you the number of people who I don't know who've reached out to me via Facebook or Instagram or like, hey, you know, you this came up on my feed that you're running with diabetes. That's great. You know, I want to get more involved. And it, it really is a way to raise awareness, not just from the general public that, you know, we need to raise funds to end, end this disease, but among other people who have diabetes and think that maybe, maybe they had a doctor who told them they shouldn't be running anymore, or they're just looking to meet other people who understand what they're going through. So I, I like to tell myself that it's important for me to keep doing New York City more as an ambassador of the community than any sort of, you know, I need to do New York because it's the last one on my list or or any reason like that. Totally makes sense. And you definitely are an ambassador. Um, you're very much involved with JDRF, so keep up the good work, pal. But um, I think this brings us to the end of the episode. But thank you so much, Alex, for those listeners that want to follow his journey. He's always running. Um, and traveling. You are literally <laughs> never not traveling. I'm like, take me with you. He is at <laughs> A.R. Donnelly. That's D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y underscore on Instagram. Um, keep up with all of his running, really, and theater. And just really, you have one of the funnest Instagram accounts because you're always contagiously laughing while like drinking a beer after having ran a marathon. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Um...
Um, <laughs> I'm going to do some personal plugs here for Pancreas Pals. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Pancreas underscore Pals. Follow us on Facebook at Pancreas Pals PP. And be sure to be on the lookout. We still have one more episode left of the season, and we are going to make a big announcement as to who the new co-host – I can't speak anymore – as to who the new co-host is going to be, and it is exciting news. Um, also, we'll be, I know Alex is excited about it, I can tell. Um, we'll be posting a ton to our Instagram and still updating diagnosis stories and doing a blog post on our website at pancreaspals.com. Be sure to reach out to us anytime. Pals are always here for one another, and we look forward to seeing you on the Instagram and interwebs. Everyone have a great rest of your week, and thanks again, Alex and Miriam. Thanks. Of course, thanks, guys.